Hi, everybody. I'm Phil Town. I'm Danielle Town. We're here to talk about money. Being mindful about it would be one good thing. We're going to discuss... <laughs> Being thoughtful about what's happening with your money. And try to figure out how to invest the way the best investors in the world do it, what we call rule number one investing, which comes from Warren Buffett saying there's two rules of investing. Rule number one is don't lose money, and rule number two is don't forget rule number one. And we would actually thought we'd start again in this series with a little... Uh, uh, interview that Charlie Munger gave to the BBC a couple years ago. Charlie is Warren Buffett's uh, partner and um, gave this interview. It's very short. It's one minute and he basically lays out the four critical things you have to do right to invest with the success that he and Warren have had for the last 60 years. So, Well, the whole interview is about is longer than a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah. But if you want to find it, it's on YouTube. Put in BBC Charlie Munger. It'll come up. It's about I think 12 minutes or something. But this one section where he lays out the four principles is a minute long. And we've been listening to it every single episode so far in this series of discussing those four principles, which um, you know took him a minute to say and is taking us hours <laughs> to I love, I love dissect. Says, it's so simple. It's so it's simple. simple. <laughs> we've been unpeeling this onion for hours. So <laughs> let's go peel some more off of it. All right, so here we go. This is Charlie Munger. We have to deal in things that we're capable of understanding. And then once we're over that filter, we have to have a business with some intrinsic characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage. And then, of course, we would vastly prefer a management in place with a lot of integrity and talent. And... Finally, no matter how wonderful it is, it's not worth an infinite price. So we have to have a price that makes sense and gives a margin of safety considering the natural vicissitudes of life. That's a very simple set of ideas. And the reason that our ideas have not spread faster is they're too simple. The professional classes can't justify their existence if that's all they have to say. I mean, it's all so obvious and so simple. What would they have to do with the rest of the semester? <laughs> to me, Charlie's speaking directly to the academics there. And, <laughs> and we started to get into this last time because you asked, you know, well, you know, is value, our value and price the same thing? And um, I think we got to dig in on that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, we're all working with the price that we have today on any given day of the company that we want to buy in the market. So how do you know if that's a good price or not? Well, this is a really important thing because Charlie is saying that understanding these four principles is just too simple for the academics. Um, they wouldn't be able to justify their existence, so they have to come up with something much more complicated and much more difficult. And then, you know, and then you've got something you can teach for four years and go out and get Nobel Prizes. And that's exactly who he's arguing with here uh, in this little statement, is the, the predominant paradigm of investing that's taught in universities, particularly in the Ivy League, um, is one that says that value and price are the same thing. And therefore, you can't get a margin of safety price. You can't get a discount on anything. Nobody can really beat the market. And anybody who does is simply an anomaly. They're simply uh, a, a, a part of a bell curve of potential outcomes, 
And there's always, you know, the one ball that lands way out on the end of the bell curve. There's, there's always that little thin probability that one ball goes clear out on that bell curve box to be the one out of 100. But most of the balls, when you drop them into the bell curve box, land in the middle within a standard deviation that ranges around 67% off the middle of this thing. So what, what Charlie's basically saying is that that notion that the marketplace is perfectly priced, that all values are and all prices are the same thing, is not correct. It was too simple for people to understand that things go on sale. And so I'm going to kind of push back on that just a little bit. So he's saying it's too simple to understand that occasionally companies are worth something different than their price in the market. Yeah. That that in the, you would like it would basically be saying. So that means companies. Go ahead. Well, he was basically saying these academics don't understand that that the market is more like a garage sale than some sort of bell curve perfect world, um, you know, impossible perfection of rational pricing. I mean, Charlie thinks it's like a garage sale, like a big flea market, <laughs> you know. And most of the time, people are selling stuff in the flea market, you know, getting a reasonable price. But once in a while, you can get a real deal in there if you know what you're looking for. And you also get ripped off at the flea market. Precisely a his lot. point. <laughs> it, it, that would make his point even stronger. Yeah. Now, Charlie and Warren basically feel like the market has, um, has emotions that feed into it. And what I like to think of it is as a, they call the market Mr. Market and say that... The Who does? Charlie and Warren. Okay. They basically say it's Mr. Market is our partner, that we... Uh, we have this wonderful partner who will buy anything we want to sell and will sell anything we want to buy, but he gets to name the price. So he's our partner. They say that most of the time he's pretty rational and prices things properly, but sometimes he gets emotional and doesn't. And because he sometimes gets emotional uh, and fails to price things rationally, he prices them irrationally either way too high or way too low, depending on his mood. So I like to kind of think of it that Mr. Market's bipolar and is on his meds most of the time and keeping pretty, you know, pretty reasonable range of emotion. And once in a while, he falls off his meds. And when that happens, he can become irrationally exuberant mm -hmm. or he can become horribly chronically depressed. And in either of those scenarios, you're going to get mispriced companies. So what Warren and Buffett say is much simpler than that. They basically say that that they buy on fear and sell on greed. And as those two predominant emotions start taking over the market, it becomes either a seller's market or a buyer's market. And they just want to be sure they're not buying into a greedy market and selling into a fearful one, which is what everyone else does. That's almost by definition what a greedy market is, is everyone is paying too much and then paying more and then paying more and then paying more. And you get this huge bubble like in 1999 and again in 2007. Uh, or you have this hugely depressed market, like much of what happened in the 1970s, 2000, 2009. You know, the market, every, it was just so much fear. And so if you can catch a market, and, and basically Charlie and Warren are looking at this from a long point of view, that there, there are these natural fluctuations that go on from Mr. Market being very rational and on his meds, then fluctuating into greediness, and then dropping into depression and fear. And that, that, that fluctuation, Ben Graham said, is the natural fluctuations of the market. 
you can't help it. If the market's been good for a long time, it starts to go into a bubble. It's the natural vicissitudes of life. It is. Well <laughs> said. It is a, one of the vicissitudes is that people get greedy. And if everyone sees everyone making money in the stock market, everyone starts putting more money in. Because why? Because I saw my friends making money. It looks easy. So now I'm going to put more money in the market. And when no one's making any money in the stock market, I'm getting my money out of there. Why? Because no one's making money in the market. So you're following these basic, terrible instincts of greed and fear, which make you do just the wrong thing at exactly the time when you should be doing the opposite. I have to say I find it interesting that you are talking about those instincts so negatively, because to me it's people using evidence to make their decisions. Okay, the market's been good for a little while. Maybe it's been good for a year. I see it going up. I see people I know and trust putting money into the market. This seems like a good time to put money into the market. And the converse as well. So I, I'm not sure that it, it's a greedy action necessarily. I mean, to me, oh, to me it makes sense. Could, I think you could make a, a little argument there that what the core thing that's driving you to make this sensible decision to put your money in the market is this sense that your friends are making money. Well, they are. Which is greed kicking in. My friends are making money. I'm not making money. I want to make money like my friends are. All right, are. well, if you're going to call that greed, then you have to call any sort of investment a greedy action because we're all trying to figure out what to do with our money. That's the whole reason we're discussing this. <laughs> okay, let me back off of it then because I don't want to go there. That would mess with me too much. But let's then call it exuberance. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm just wondering, rather than it, you know, coming from a place of trying to figure out what on earth to do with your money, you see your friend's making money, you see people you trust making money, it seems to me completely rational to then follow what people you trust are doing. Well, I don't think it's irrational to follow what friends are doing that you trust, but you got to be thinking that it might be just a little sketchy to be putting your hard-earned money, money you want to retire on, into something that you don't understand. Absolutely. Simply because your friends are doing it. I agree with that. I mean, that's lemmings off the cliff time. Right? So I'm not sure how rational that really is. That's exactly what leads people into bubbles. It does. Exactly. That's exactly what leads people into bubbles, 100%. I'm just, I, I can see how people get there. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm saying. I see how they get there. I mean, you know, one and one is two, yeah. right? My friends are making money. I want to make money. Yeah. Therefore, I should do what my friends it are doing. It seems like it will keep going up. Yeah. So I'm going to buy in. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we shouldn't ignore when we're talking about investing your own money, the rule one style, because, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about investment gurus that you like to follow. We're going to be talking about you and stuff that you're choosing. People are looking at what other people are doing in order to make investment decisions. Good. Correct? And, and yes, that is correct. And, and then I just want to take you back to what Charlie has okay. been saying each time, which is, first thing you have to do, the first sort of level of screen before you can say, I'm going to do what my friends are doing, is am I capable of understanding? Absolutely. What and I think buying? that's what that's what is cool about what you've been saying, is that there's this whole other section of knowledge and, and research and um, investment of time 
before you actually go ahead and make that decision to do what your friends are doing. And maybe you still make the same decision. Maybe your friends are really smart and already did that stuff as well. Maybe your friend's named Charlie. Exactly. So I think, like... I obviously had a had a reaction to your use of the word greed. <laughs> I don't think what we're doing is greedy, and I don't think investing is greedy, and I don't think that trying to put your money in an intelligent place is greedy at None all. None of those things. I are think greedy. it's important, and I think that's the entire thing that we're talking about. None of those things are greedy, and in, in all fairness, we do you know we do have this desire to become more financially secure, and so that desire is driving us to look for things to place the money in. It's a perfectly rational thing to do, is to look and do it. Now, when you actually leap, that can be what's irrational. If you don't see where you're going to fall, that's not a good idea to just jump. Yeah, So, and it sounds to me like what you're saying is don't just follow what somebody else is doing. That's what creates the bubble. It's uh, a poorly informed decision. Exactly. And so, I mean, one of the kind of classic moments in investing is when your taxi driver is giving you stock tips. Right. You're at the top. (laughs) You're really, things are going to be bad from here on out because it's gone to that place where people who have no information about it, no education about it, um, are actively investing in this thing. And which... And really, I don't want to even use the word investing when it comes to that. They're just gambling. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting point. It's just pure speculation. It's speculation. You because know? they don't have the information. They haven't right. done the research. Right. They haven't done the research. And what Charlie's laid out is really a wonderful box to put yourself in. You say, okay, do I am I capable of understanding this business? Does it have a durable competitive advantage in the market? Is it run by people who um, have integrity and are talented? And finally, do I know what the value of the business is enough to know I'm not paying an infinite price, I'm paying a margin of safety discount to a sensible price. That's mm-hmm. what I want to do. And the, the difficulty with the rest of the world understanding that isn't really what Charlie says it is. The reason these guys don't teach this isn't because it's too simple. <laughs> and it isn't because they need to justify their existence. Okay. Right, of course He's not. Being He's being snarky. facetious. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's being 92. <laughs> and the reason that they don't teach it is because they don't believe you can do what he does. All right, let me let me give you an example of how wild this is in, in the academic circles. There's a guy named Burton Malkiel, who's in a professor emeritus at Princeton Economics Department, um, who wrote a book in 1973 called um, Random Walk on Wall Street, where he described this thesis that was coming out now, first... Uh, public indication of that thesis that Richard Fama came up with, that, the, that price is value. And so what this means when you say price is value is that effectively the stock market is a random world. It's a random system. Like price could go up, price could go down. You know, you don't know because everything is priced perfectly which way it's going to go because things change in the natural vicissitudes of life. And so what his book said is that you might as well throw darts at, at a board with stock names on it as to spend all this time trying to do stock research because you're not going to get a deal. You might as well just buy a bunch of them and, you know, do the index. and Follow the market. Follow the market. And so this was the first follow the market index book out there. And it was very popular and it's still in print right now. But he came up with it. And, and he's, a, he's a real honest guy. So he, he came up with the, a, the problem with the thesis that the market's perfectly priced is that nobody can beat the market. And the problem with that is that Warren Buffett, by 1973, had been crushing the market for almost 20 years. <laughs> so you've got, this, you've got this anomaly happening over here where the market's doing 8 or 9%, and Buffett is doing like 28. 
mm. and and year after year, and with no bad down years. I mean, just completely destroying the idea that you can't beat the market. Um, and therefore, and you've got Buffett out there saying that the reason he can do this is because he's buying things on sale. He's buying things with a margin of safety. He and Charlie were doing that right up through 1973. So here's this guy, he's an honest academic, and he says, all right, well, I have to deal with this problem. So in the book, he's discussing Buffett's success and how could this happen. And so what he basically says is, look, we know that the market is a bell curve, and on any bell curve, you have these far outlier events way out here on the end. In other words, if this was a, a bell curve about flipping coins, and you flip the coins a million times, in the middle of the bell curve would be, you know, heads and tails, and it's going to come up most of the time. He says, but there's always a possibility that you look closely at the coin flipping going on, you might see, let's say, you've got millions of monkeys flipping coins, you might see a monkey that hits 100 heads in a row. I mean, we can imagine how that could actually happen. Sure. Okay. Now, we're going to ignore for a second that Nicholas Taleb came in with, um, what was his book? The, um, the Did he write The Black Swan? Black Swan, yeah. And basically did the math on that 100 monkey thing. Like, I mean, uh, 100 heads in a row thing for, for a monkey flipping him. It's like... The probabilities. Not just... in this universe. <laughs> <laughs> but we can imagine it. We can imagine it, right? I mean, it just sounds more likely than it actually is, right? Uh -huh. yeah. So, so Malkiel says... So essentially Buffett, and he didn't literally say this, but he was implying, essentially Buffett is a monkey flipping coins and just got lucky, and there's always going to be one, and Buffett's the one. So he was the only guy out there in the 70s who had been doing this sort of value long-term investing? No, Munger was doing it. There were a lot of, Ben Graham had been doing it since the 1930s. There was a pretty hefty bunch of evidence that there are a number of investors out there very successfully beating the market consistently. But they, the, the work hadn't been done to really publicize that yet. Mm. So Buffett was just a popular guy, and he was well-known at that time, but not vastly well-known. You know, it wasn't like common stuff, but people knew he existed. I don't know that anybody really knew that much about Charlie Munger at that point in time. And going forward, more fund managers started to emulate his style of investing. And now, in 2015, we have enough people that... Is it starting to become generally accepted that maybe they're not outliers? Amazingly, with the professors who came up with this idea back 30 years ago, they haven't been convinced at all by 40 years of success on the part of investors that do what I do and what Warren does and all this. They haven't been convinced in the least. And the reason that they haven't been convinced, I think, goes right to paradigm theory, which is really fascinating. It's basically, if you have people who have deep uh, roots in a paradigm and have something to lose if the paradigm shifts, they're not going to shift. They're going to they're have to die first, and then you, the paradigm can shift. Um, and so, for example, you know, people who thought the world was flat, you know, just simply would not believe the evidence that the world was not. And just, they would ignore the evidence. And that's what we see now on the part of people who are in the efficient market hypothesis, is that they're starting to stretch it a little bit. And they're going, yeah, well, there's the there's the strong efficient market hypothesis, and there's the weak efficient, you know. Well, it sounded like make, you were saying in our last episode that maybe long-term people think that there's an efficient market. It's just short-term that it's not so efficient. Long-term, I is think that everyone agrees that the market is efficient. Long-term. Um, but this thesis that you can't beat the market depends rather strongly on it 
being efficient short term as well. And, and so it's sort of, it's kind of funny. You, start, you see the academics starting to go, well, there might be, yeah, I mean, even Burton Malkiel, who wrote the book on this thing, is like, yeah, there's probably a weak version of this where the market is sometimes inefficient occasionally. And you just want to go, okay. I mean, you just blew your theory up because if it's occasionally inefficient, that's all you need. All you need is an occasional opportunity in a flea market And it is no longer efficient. It's no longer efficient. (laughs) Done. Story over. And essentially by saying it's occasionally inefficient, he's absolutely admitted what he didn't want to admit, which is that allows it not to be random when Warren Buffett is crushing the market for 50 years, which obviously isn't random. So he puts this out there in 1973 and, and basically calls Buffett a monkey flipping coins and lucky. And Buffett stayed quiet about it for another 15 years. But the book stayed around, and Efficient Market really got dug in on the Ivy League. And so in 1988, uh, Warren went to Columbia University's business school and gave a lecture called The Investors of Graham and Doddsville. And you should really go read it. It's phenomenal. It's online. The Investors of Graham and Doddsville. Just Google it. PDF will come up. And it's basically a lecture that says, um, granted, I could be a monkey flipping coins uh, and getting 100 heads in a row, and I wouldn't know it. I just th- I think I'm smart, and I'm actually just lucky. And there's conceivably many monkeys flipping coins and getting 100 heads in a row. And, and we look at each other and go, hey, you're kind of like lucky, and I'm lucky. Um, and aren't we smart and all that? <laughs> but here's the thing. You know, that could be random. But what if all the monkeys that were flipping coins and getting 100 heads in a row all were in the same zoo? Then would it be random? Or would you have to deal with the lack of randomness that that would indicate? Yes, I think you would. I think you would have a problem with randomness at that point. And so the lecture is Buffett proving that all of the people who studied this the way he studied it, who then became fund managers, all of them, the whole set, all crushed the market for about 20 to 30 years each. And he presents the data. It's incontrovertible data. So, But did that matter to the guys? No. Who had the efficient market theory? No, they just kept on with it because they had just won a Nobel Prize for efficient market hypothesis. Won the Nobel Prize in economics. And today, options are priced with the Black-Scholes formula, which depends very much on efficient market hypothesis. All things are priced according to their value. So it's very strong in the, in the market. And it wasn't until 1999 that a really powerful counter-argument came out from the academic community. Robert Schiller, an economist at Yale, wrote a book called Irrational Exuberance and basically said the stock market is so massively overpriced right now. It's just stupid. And then he showed through 140 years of the stock market history that definitely the stock market gets overpriced and underpriced. That it is not at its value all the time. It's moving through it into bubbles and then moving through it into depressions. And, um, and he, it's a really good book. You should read it. Irrational Exuberance by Robert Schiller. And that's started to reshift the paradigm because that's speaking the same language as the academics. And since then, there's been a number of papers come out indicating that, in fact, people do beat the market. In fact, the smaller you are, the more chance you have of beating the market, which makes sense, right? You don't have to move so much money around. And gradually, I think this paradigm is going to go away because it's a little hard to argue that the market is really efficient when you've got stuff priced one day, you know, at $100 a share and, and six months later it's at 20 and the world hasn't ended. You know, it's very difficult to argue that that's really rational pricing. Um, so that, not only that, but we all know how scared we get managing our own money and the fund managers aren't any different than us except it's more money and they're more scared when it gets right down to it. 
So I, I think Buffett and, and Munger have really nailed it, that the market is, is pricing things rationally most of the time, but occasionally it gets greedy and then we want to sell. And occasionally it gets fearful and then we want to buy. So the essence of our investing strategy is simply to be capable of understanding the companies that you're looking at, be sure that they have a really durable business model, some intrinsic characteristics that allow them to compete for a long time in the future so that you can come up with the real value of the business. And then when you can come up with the real value of the business, then you can see when it's on sale. Do you think that having that knowledge and that research into the management and the moat and the basic underpinnings of the business counteracts the fear that is natural in us? I mean, I think it's natural to feel that fear. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about it like this. The essence of this paradigm is that in order to get a higher return, you must take more risk. That's the essence of the paradigm that says that all prices and values are this, are, all prices are values. What does taking risk mean? Well, taking risks means you know that you're going to have to take a bigger chance that you're going to lose your money on this stock or this how, index. How would I take a risk? Oh, well, I want to make a risky investment. What would okay. that look like? Okay, very, very good. A risky investment, according to the efficient market hypothesis, is an investment in a stock that moves around up and down in its prices substantially more than the S&P 500 index. That would be... So a volatile stock a volatile is a stock, risky stock? According to efficient market hypothesis. So modern portfolio theory, which is what you, all the mutual funds are based on almost, um, which all the pension funds, all the California Teachers Association money is being invested with modern portfolio or theory, which essentially says that the more a stock bounces around relative to the S&P 500 index, the more, which means it's more volatile, the more risky it is. They've, they've made this academic leap that price movement is the same as risk. You know, that makes complete sense to me. If you have no knowledge of what that company does, if you have no knowledge of their management, and you're purely buying it on speculation, that is terrifying to watch the price go up and down. Absolutely. Well said. So here's so that so that so to to me, if you do have the information and the knowledge that we've been talking about, it would counteract the fear with a volatile stock. Yes. Let's give an example. Let's say a company is um, just going along just like the S and P five hundred. So it, let's say the S and P five hundred volatility is one. Okay. We'll, we'll say it's a volatility rating of one, and this company also has a volatility rating of one. So if I were building you a portfolio and you said, you know, I said, how much risk do you want to take? And you said, I don't want to take any risk at all. And I say, okay, well, we're going to put some money in the stock market and we're going to keep it to very low volatility, which I'm thinking as an advisor is the same as risk because that's what I've been taught. Okay. So you say, I don't want any risk. I translate that. You don't want any volatility relative to the S&P 500. So I'm going to buy this company that has volatility one because it's the same. All right. Now. Suddenly, and is sorry, is that just due to historical numbers? Yeah, historical this company prices. hasn't really moved its price in five years, therefore, it is extremely well, it's, or it's like gone up in a steady way. If the SP went down, it went down, if it went up, it went up. I it's see. just floating along with the SP 500. I see. So it'll get a volatility. If 
the S&P volatility number, let's say, is one. This has a one because it's doing the same thing. All right. But now these guys announce that, oh, man, um, Egyptian cotton, because of the Arab Spring, is maybe not going to be harvested. And as a result, the futures prices on in the futures market in Chicago on cotton has just gone nuts. And cotton used to be 85 cents a pound. It's now $2. And our company makes t-shirts. And we are not going to be able to buy cotton and make a profit at $2 a, a pound cotton. So we're going to just tell you right now, we're going to lose money for the next couple quarters until either they straighten it out, what's going on in Egypt, or Georgia plants a lot of cotton. In any case, it'll work itself out in a year or two. Now that just happened, that's a real thing. Yeah. Okay. And what happens then is the market perceives a great deal of uncertainty about how this company's gonna do in the near term. Well, actually there's no uncertainty. The CEO just told you they're gonna get hammered. And so what do people do? They sell it, all right? And so this thing that used to have a one suddenly drops like a brick when the S&P is still going along just fine. And now the volatility rating goes to three. Are you with me? Now the price of this stock was at $45 a share when it had a one. And then it went down like a brick to $15 a share. Now it's got a volatility rating of three, three times riskier than the S&P 500 according to the modern portfolio theory. Okay, but think about it just from the point of view of somebody who goes to flea markets, okay, and, buy, and buys good stuff on sale. This company's not going to be long-term in trouble at all. Georgia's going to plant cotton. Cotton's going to go back down. So eventually, in the next year or two, it's going to be fine. So why would it suddenly change its value from 45 to 15? And the answer is it didn't. The value's still more or less where it was, whatever it was. I'm not saying it's 45, maybe it was 30, whatever. But it's where it was. It didn't change dramatically because this is a very short-term event. And yet now Mr. Market is saying, this is a very risky company. Okay, but it's not. It's just still a good company. But look at what happened. The market's saying it was less risky to buy it when it had a rating of one for $45 a share than it is to buy it today for $15. It's the same company. Nothing long-term changed. It is available right, nothing long-term changed. It's Some short-term changes. Yeah, I'm buying a $10 bill for $3. And somehow the market theory that dominates the market now is telling me that this was riskier to buy this at $3 than it was to buy it at $10 three weeks ago. That's insane. I mean, it actually makes no common sense whatsoever. Long-term. Long-term. But academics are looking at this and just saying, well, volatility is equal to risk, therefore this is far riskier, and that's why it's at 15. I mean, it's just like, wow, man. When you get onto how crazy that is, you start to see why Charlie is thinking, these ideas are so simple that the academics don't get it. They just don't get it. And so he thinks this is completely no-brainer. I mean, are you capable of understanding a t-shirt company? Yeah. Um, do this company have intrinsic characteristics that give it a long term? Yeah, they're the lowest priced t-shirt company in the world. They make the cheapest t-shirts. Great, that's a huge moat. Are the management talented? They're brilliant and they have total integrity. Look at, they came out and told you the truth about what was gonna happen, knowing it would crush the stock price. And they're now on sale. That's all Charlie's saying, is it's a simple idea. But the academics have gotten so wrapped up in this notion 
that the change in price on a company is the same as risk, that they don't see it. They don't. They actually don't see it. And so it sounds much, like they're saying that the new price is its new value. They are saying that exactly what they're saying. So they simply don't believe anything can can be on sale. So, like, imagine this: you're walking across the campus in Princeton with Dr. Malkiel, and you look down and you see a hundred dollar bill on the ground. So you reach down to pick it up, and he says, "Danielle, don't pick it up, because if it was real, it wouldn't be there." <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly it moves along on a string and on the sidewalk, and it's some frat boy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Sometimes hundred bills are on the ground, and you have to you have to be willing to go pick them up. That's all Charlie's saying, and that's the essence of rule one style investing: is to be capable of understanding a business, know that it's really durable, and you can then put a value on it, and then wait patiently until these normal fluctuations of the market, which Charlie calls the vicissitudes of life, those normal vicissitudes bring you that company on sale. That's basic rule one investing 101 right there. Wow. That's, I think we should stop right now. <laughs> that, was like, that was like coming to some kind of a conclusion, which is so hard to do. But we need to go on to the next level because you asked a question a, a, a couple podcasts ago where you said, you know, Ken, isn't it hard to just kind of like find all these companies and do all this research and that you're capable of understanding and then you you know you, you end up with all these companies you understand really well but none of them are on sale because the normal vicissitudes of the market haven't put them on sale yet yeah so, so frustrating what's a shortcut here all right so we got a couple more things we got to talk about actually before we can even get to that i want to show you how um guys like charlie and warren and i figure out the value of the business we need to talk about that so let's go into that next time yeah, that good sounds work. great. All right. Well, until then. Until then. Have a good pleasure. Thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like us, please subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. You can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and get more information about how to invest on your own by going to ruleonepodcast.com. Everything we've discussed in this podcast is either Danielle's opinion or my opinion and is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya. <laughs>